Good morning. With a week old, I have to remember that only he can give me rest. Yes. Thank you for all your prayers and support for the Sobitz family, especially April and our newborn. One week today, Asher. Yes, let's see. Okay. Man, one week off and I forget what I'm doing. I didn't send an email on what I'd be preaching on this week because you got one two weeks ago. And so I'm just going to preach on that. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Augustine said, At the beginning of the human race, the woman was made of a rib taken from the side of the man while he slept. For it seemed fit that even then Christ and his church should be foreshadowed in this event. For that sleep of the man was the death of Christ, whose side, as he hung lifeless upon the cross, was pierced with a spear, and there flowed from it blood and water, and these we know to be the sacraments by which the church is built up. Those sacraments, of course, being baptism and the Lord's Supper. And just as a reminder, uh, this summer... We're studying the doctrines of the church, or as we said two weeks ago, ecclesiology, the, stu the study of the church. And if you remember, just the word, the Greek word for church in the New Testament and even the Old Testament, Hebrew word means gathering or assembly, congregation. This series will be intentionally preached in a systematized order. So if you missed one, or if you missed one week, please go back and listen to it. We'll do short recaps each week, but for time's sake, we cannot recap all the material, especially today. The highlights from two weeks ago are, number one, the church, by its own definition, is called to gather together. And number two, we are called to gather on the Lord's day which is Sunday, and we must not make it a habit of not gathering on the Lord's Day because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. I preach that, and then I miss church the very next week. So uh, don't make it a habit is what the author of Hebrews says. So there are exceptions, which we talked about, but the word says don't make it a habit of neglecting to assemble together. And number three, the New Testament describes the church as certain and specific metaphors that are meant to help us understand the significance of the church and how we should live in response to that reality. And the two we spent time covering, which is not an exhaustive list, but the two we spent time covering were the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. Today, we'll look at the two ordinances, the two sacraments, the first, baptism. Baptism is a one-time ordinance that signifies our entry or initiation into the new covenant community, or body of Christ, or bride of Christ, or church. The second one is the Lord's Supper, or communion, or Eucharist. The Lord's Supper is to be repeated 
a repeated ordinance, which reminds us that the blood of Jesus is still applied, yes, today, for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a church meal that we should continue to observe as we await the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. Biblically speaking, we we should note that these two ordinances are the only two that the church and the New Testament is commanded to obey and observe. We must also realize the importance of these two because if people who gather together are not observing them, biblically speaking, they should not be considered a church. Allow me to qualify that for a moment. Matthew 16 Starting in verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In Matthew 16, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church, and in doing so said, whatever the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Which means, what does that, what does that even mean? That the church has the authority from on high, from Christ, the head of the church, to affirm a professing believer into the body of Christ. As well, to continue to affirm them as part of the body of Christ. And the way that the Lord has commanded that the church do that, that first-time affirmation and a continued affirmation, is through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and communion are not intended, were never intended to be practiced individually. There may be exceptions to baptism, but as a practice, they should not be conducted and affirmed unless they're conducted and affirmed by the entire body of Christ, a local church. And for that matter, not just in regard to baptism, but we should reject any notion Our temptation to believe that that our relationship, my relationship with Christ is individual or just personal. Yes, we have a personal communion. We should have a personal relationship with the Lord. We should have personal communion with the Lord. But our relationship with Christ is commanded in the New Testament to be lived out through the local church. There's no way to get around that. Maybe I should have said the, this little primer ahead of time. I know there's controversial issues surrounding baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to spend time working through those this morning. We are simply going to examine some particular passages today to help us develop a better understanding of what these two ordinances are. But if you want to have deeper conversations about that and get into the controversial issues, I take my coffee black. So, and my steak's medium rare. 
my pizza a little crispy. Okay, first on desk, decks. Wow, first on deck, baptism. One of the issues that is common about baptism is that many people who have asked, at least that I find, who have asked to be baptized actually have no idea why they should be baptized or why the Bible says to be baptized, which is a problem because when we look at Acts 2 and the Pauline epistles or the, the letters written by Paul, baptism is the initiation ritual into the body of Christ. So in other words, when, when first century Christians, when Christians in the Bible in those times repented and believed that Jesus died and rose again, what was the next step? It's baptism. Baptism, and that led into their entry of the church. And I can recall on multiple occasions when someone has asked me to baptize them, none of this church, just in case you're wondering, but they've asked me to baptize them, and they were unable to give a sufficient answer pertaining as to why they wanted to be baptized. Even more so, it's, it's been very common, and I think the number one uh, reasoning that people have given me for wanting to be baptized is they say, I want my sins to be washed away. I want my sins to be completely washed away. Does baptism do that? I hope if you're a Christian, you know the answer to that. Now, one time, just once, a person actually told me that the reason they wanted to be baptized was because they wanted Jesus to give them a good career. They didn't even want forgiveness or their sins washed away. They let, I asked, I was like, is that the only reason? And they said, yes. I don't think you should be baptized. And so without unpacking that for the next 45 minutes as to why that person should not be baptized, we can at least note that not only was this person's doctrine of baptism incorrect, their doctrine of God was incorrect. Loved one, God will not be manipulated into giving us what we want by doing religious activities. If we're tempted to believe that, then we have been influenced by the prosperity gospel that guarantees wealth instead of the true gospel that promises forgiveness. So what is baptism? Right, number one, baptism signifies our union with Christ. Well, I should just pray right here. Heavenly Father, God, as we dive into your word, into the New Testament, and try to understand what, what, what are the marks the markings of a, of a, not just a church, of a faithful church, Lord, of the body of Christ. What would you have us understand through your word today, Lord? So if these are the two ordinances that we are commanded to do, what do they mean? How can we do them faithfully? Not just as a body of Christ, but with Christ at the head to honor him, to bring glory to you. Help us to do that. And, and put us on a trajectory to, to do that in a faithful manner, Lord. And to teach that faithfully, Lord, to those who would want to be baptized and want to partake of the Lord's Supper. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 6.3, Paul says, Are you unaware 
that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We dunk them, right? Submerge. United to Christ in death. We bring him out of the water. Raised to walk in newness of life. That's why you always hear that. For verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The context of Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is countering an argument about the grace of God being suggested to be used as a license to sin, as if because we're saved by grace, we just have full range to sin however we want to. And Paul says, absolutely not. No. Grace, the grace of God is not permission to sin. And then he uses our baptism to substantiate his claims. For the record, I'm not saying Paul is only referring or just simply referring to water baptism. In fact, I'd say what Paul is primarily referencing is our baptism to the Spirit. As John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming, whose sandals I'm unworthy to even tie, he will baptize you with the Spirit. And the Spirit's baptism is a baptism of regeneration in which the old version of us becomes a new version. If you've heard my testimony, the burger with mayo becomes a burger without. That's a joke if you like mayonnaise. Sorry, if you haven't heard my testimony, that probably isn't making sense right now. I should have left that out. Spiritual baptism is being reborn. Our water baptism, in which we are immersed underwater, is an outward profession of that inward transformation. So inwardly, we have been united to Christ as we made a choice to die to sin or die to self. I'm done following my path. Now I'm going to follow Christ as Lord. Outwardly, we are professing this inward reality to the church, to a local church who baptizes us. It's, it's, it's our water baptism is a public announcement to the church that we are repenting from our former life, returning from our sins in order to follow Jesus. It is a symbolic ritual that tells the church, 
I no longer resemble the old version. I'm one of you guys now. And we affirm that. We say, yes, we affirm your testimony. You're one of us. Uniting to Christ is death to sin. When I was in seminary, one of my bosses uh, at a restaurant I worked at was baptized at, a, at another church. We didn't go to the same church, but I remember it quite well because he was very excited to tell me about his baptism. And about a year later, he began to have an affair with a lady who visited our restaurant frequently. We weren't in the same church, but I was still convicted to, to speak to him about it one day before work. And I brought up to him the fact that he had been baptized. He told me he had been baptized and what baptism is and signifies. You didn't just profess faith in Christ. You also said, made a profession to die to sin. This is a moment to die to sin. And I called him to repent gently and he refused. For him, Christ was no longer Lord. Paul's point in Romans 6 is that when a person is baptized, not by water, but by the Spirit, if truly regenerate, if truly reborn, born again, that person will never be the same. They will sin again. But when a baptized believer is in sin and they're reminded about that physical baptism, that water baptism, when they made that greater confession that Jesus is Lord of my life, not just today, but forevermore, how they respond to being called to account about that sin is the true indicator if a spiritual baptism has actually taken place. Does baptism save? No. Does it wash away our sins? No. What saves us? Jesus Christ alone is able to save. And only his blood can wash away our sins. I don't care what other churches, other denominations, other pastor, what, what they teach. I care what the word of God says. No other name other than Jesus can save. And nothing can remove our sin except the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for it. And our baptisms can also be used to remind one another, encourage one another that those who united to Christ in death will also be raised to life on the last day. That's what that says. Number two. Baptism is an initiation into the new covenant community. Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. He preaches the gospel at Pentecost, spirit comes they're cut to the heart. They're convicted of their sin. They, 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 they believe the truth and, and that Christ died and rose again. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. And afterwards, verse 41, then they were added to the body of Christ. This is a primary reason 
that I will not baptize someone without adding them to or adding them as a member of a local church. And we'll get further, we'll explore that a bit further as we get into the Great Commission of Matthew 28 and point three, kind of. For now, we should at least make note that the practice of the church in Acts was not to baptize someone and then send them on their way. They were baptized and then they were added to the church. There was accountability. They belonged. Baptism was the initiation ritual of those who repented from sin and confessed Christ as Lord. And therefore, baptism became the sign of the new covenant. The covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, a greater covenant than the old covenant at Mount Sinai. Baptism was a sign to the believer and to the church. Baptism initiates a covenant between that person being baptized in the church. The person being baptized says, I belong to Christ now. And the people watching respond with, yes, you belong to our body. You belong to this local church. We are one. Baptism is our entry, our, our, our public entry, maybe it better said, into the new covenant community, into the body of Christ, into the church, which has gathered people who have left their former life of rebellion and have become followers of Christ. And at our baptisms, what we're saying to the church is, I will covenant together with you in love. And the church is saying, yes, and we will covenant together with you in love. We'll look more at that, I think, next week. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one, the church, and has many members, that's where we get our membership language, it's not a golf membership, members of a body, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. When we were baptized by the spirit, we were born again. And we were included into the church, into the body of Christ, by our public profession of faith through baptism. Now, Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12 about baptism to the church in Corinth. He says, look, one of the most significant effects of baptism or realities of being baptized is that now you're one in the body of Christ. You are one with the body of Christ. Don't have complete time to explore this right now. But to a nation on fire, between genders, between races that are so stinking confused, they don't know the right from their left. Paul says, listen, I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your color is. I don't care what your size is. It doesn't matter who you are. If you believe in Christ and call Christ Lord and die to sin and raise to walk in newness of life, you are part of the church. 
And what's amazing about baptism is that it is, it is an entry into membership unlike any other. Every membership I can think of requires us to pay entry fees. And honestly, I found out Leavenworth Golf Course has some really good prices. I was amazed. But there's still a fee. But not our access into church, right? Because the blood of Jesus says, your dues were paid by me in full. There's no annual fee. It was a one-time payment, and I paid it with my blood. Number three. Baptism is commanded. I don't know if I should preface this in the Lord's Supper, but just so you know, the Lord's Supper will be a little bit shorter than the introduction and baptism, so hold fast. Hold fast. This is, yeah. Number three, baptism is commanded by Christ. The Great Commission. This is known as the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarian. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission is it's pretty straightforward. Go and make disciples of Christ. First things first, baptize them. Implication, simple application. If you're a Christian, you should be baptized. I'm going to going to switch the dial though or turn the dial because while baptism is commanded for each new believer the church has a command as well we're to make disciples we're to to teach that person who has just been baptized how to obey all that Christ taught. And many churches will baptize multiple people, even hundreds on occasion, without any significant interview prior as to why they want to be baptized or what baptism is. And churches also do very poorly at following up with the person who was baptized. Which means, as a new believer... Assuming they are truly regenerate, they're left as a sheep in the wilderness. They weren't added to the local church. They're not being discipled, and they have no idea what's next. The church is commanded to make disciples. And we don't just make disciples by getting a person to pray a prayer, or even pray a prayer and then dunking them underwater. We make disciples by pointing them to Christ. When they repent and believe, we baptize them as they unite to Christ. And then we teach them how to follow Christ. We have to stop getting excited about baptisms if we're not getting as excited about discipling one another. We are not called to make converts. We are called to make disciples. And therefore, if we baptize, we add. And if we add, we disciple. The training manual for discipleship is the Word of God. 
All right. Three matters regarding the Lord's Supper, and we will be done. The institution, the instructions, and the anticipation. I couldn't think of another I for anticipation for alliteration, but if you think of one, shout it out. And number one, the institution. Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. At Jesus' last supper, there are two significant or major events taking place in redemptive history. The first event, and the reason they are, or well, I guess the first reason, the initial reason they're gathered together is for the Passover meal. The Passover meal became an annual celebration and observance to commemorate the time when God led his people out of Egyptian oppression to slavery. After he protected them, spared them by the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb protected God's people from his wrath. In Exodus, the night of the Passover, the blood of the lamb protected God's people from his wrath. It's foreshadowing something. The Passover meal was also meant to remind Israel when God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. We know that is the old covenant where they received the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, it's also helpful to know that the entire Exodus account is the primary event in the Old Testament that's going to be used by later prophets such as Isaiah in order to explain the redemptive future of God's people, which will ultimately culminate in Christ. Furthermore, Jesus' Last Supper is going to fulfill the Passover meal. It's putting an end to it. It's done. It's over. Why? Because the bread and the wine that he is going to use is going to institute what we know as the Lord's Supper which will commemorate his death. So as the Passover meal reminded God's people of their exodus from Egypt, which was no small thing, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to remind his people of a new exodus. An exodus which didn't just free us from Egypt or, 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 or some man-made oppression, a greater exodus that freed us from the tyranny of sin and Satan. And our freedom from the power of sin came at a cost. 
So therefore, when the new covenant community, the church, comes together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we recall every time, Jesus says, and Paul says to the Corinthians, we recall the cup of wrath that Christ drank for us and the blood, which the wine signifies, that paid the debt for our sins. Implication, just as a new covenant community with the Lord's Supper, that we, we have a greater exodus. We have a greater covenant. Because most of all, we have a greater sacrificial lamb. And Jesus took his disciples. I'm sorry. Jesus looks at his disciples. And then he explains what the bread and the wine signify. Mainly that the church is to recall his body given for us and remember his blood which provided our entry into the new covenant. And we're to do it until he returns. The instructions. 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes to Corinth. I want to go through this passage briefly so we can help understand who can take the Lord's Supper, who shouldn't take the Lord's Supper, and when should we partake the Lord's Supper? Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. That's why we examine ourselves. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Where do we partake? Verse 18. We partake when we gather as a church. Who can partake? Verse 26. Christians who proclaim the death of Christ which provided his body 
and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Who should not partake? Verses 27 through 30. Those who do not believe in Christ and those who may be causing division in the church or who will be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by living in unrepentant sin and therefore we should examine ourselves. Well, but what if I'm struggling with sin? Are you repentant? Are you fighting against it? Have you confessed it? Take the Lord's Supper. That's not in an unworthy manner. Loved ones, on a basic level, none of us are worthy to partake of the new covenant meal or a meal with Christ. However, the new covenant meal was, was instituted so that unworthy sinners like you and me who profess faith in Christ can remind ourselves on a continued basis that there is no accusation that can be made against those who have washed their filthy linen in the blood of the Lamb. It is not our obedience that makes us worthy to partake of Christ's blood. Rather, it is the obedience of Christ which makes the blood worthy to drink and receive eternal life. None of us are worthy without Christ to partake of the Lord's Supper. But there is a difference. Hear this part. There is a difference of being worthy to sit with Jesus or to take the Lord's Supper and a difference between taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Sorry, I'll repeat that. There's a difference of being worthy to take the Lord's Supper and taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And finally, as a point of encouragement, the anticipation. The Lord's Supper is an anticipation of the future. It points us toward the meal that we will share with Jesus when he returns. First, Jesus said back in Luke 18, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, which means there's another supper that Jesus is referring to. And when we take the Lord's Supper, as we will soon, we should anticipate, look forward to, with joy and gladness, that, 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 that the next time Jesus has a meal, it's going to be with us. You see, not only is the Lord's Supper meant for us to reflect on the reality of our sins being forgiven, it's also calling us to reflect on the reality of His coming kingdom when Christ returns. And at that meal, we are going to join our Savior for the marriage supper with the Lamb. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Prussic Pizza kitchen. Just, just open. Tumwater. Gone there once or twice so far. When I stand there, I've gotten to go. And people are coming in. And they want to sit down and eat. And they say, do you have a reservation? And they don't. They don't have an invite. No reservation. So they get turned away. Right? The blood of Jesus Christ. That is the invitation to this marriage supper where if we die before he comes or when he comes, if we try to show up to that meal without an invitation, we will be turned away. The thing is, at Prusik, they put their name on the list. Yeah, Sobitz's name's on the list. doesn't work that way. We don't come in our own name to the marriage supper. We only come to that supper in the name of Jesus Christ. He put me on the list. Just check it. The marriage supper is the next meal Jesus will drink from the fruit of the vine. When he returns, he will sit down with us and feast, and we should anticipate this moment. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we should, look, we should remind one another and look forward to it. And, and, and here's something. Jesus does. Jesus looks forward to that. Why, why do I say that? Look, look at verse 15, back in Luke at the Passover meal. Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Think it out. If Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples before he suffered and died, how much more do you think Jesus earnestly desires to eat that meal with his bride who he died for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, the Eucharist, it's, it says, sometimes I forget that the first thing that it says is, he gave thanks. Lord, we give thanks, Lord. We begin as, as we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, that we give thanks that his body, you sent the Son, and he came to offer his body and blood for us. That there is no way we could ever come to that meal in Revelation 19 unless our invitation was purchased by his blood. God, I pray if no one has even understood the gospel, that baptism and Lord's Supper would help them understand that it portrays it, it demonstrates it, that we live out the reality of belief in these two ordinances. And God, I pray that we examine ourselves today and that the unity in our church remains, God. For Christ died for it. Amen.